Good morning. Well, I'll tell you what, when you're the guest preacher and you have to carry your own table over, I don't know. I don't know. Scott went brain dead, didn't he? He usually takes care of that for me so I don't have to hurt my back, and I usually appreciate that. But right now, I'm just going to throw him under the bus. I'm all right with that. Um, let me share a quote with you. It comes from uh, a man by the name of Voltaire. Anybody heard of this man? There are skeptics in every age, all right? There were back in the days of Jesus, there 200 years ago, uh, Voltaire. There are today as well. And so our faith needs to be strong enough, confident enough, have enough answers so that we can answer the skeptic as well. But this is what Voltaire said in 1764. The Bible, the Bible, that is what fools have written and what imbeciles commend. How about that? Pretty strong. He was born in France. He went to a couple other countries, was kicked out of those, and then ended up the last 18 years of his life or, or so in France once again. But he was a, uh, an opponent of Christianity all his days. And 1776, when this country was becoming a, a nation, he wrote a two-volume set entitled... The Bible Fully Explained. The Bible Fully Explained. What he did was that uh, for two volumes worth, he wrote a commentary on the Old and New Testaments all the way through. Can you imagine that? An atheist making the time to write a two-volume set of commentary from Genesis through Revelation. And all he did was just put down and criticize and tell why this is wrong and that. And, and that was his whole process. At the end of that work, he said this, quote, the subject is now exhausted. I took on the subject. I have done everything. It is now exhausted. The cause is decided for those who are willing to avail themselves of their reason and their lights, whatever you got inside, and people will no more read this book. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. 200 years ago that he would do that. The even more amazing part of that, if you understand the rest of the story, goes something like this. Voltaire dies, and within 60 years of his death, the very printing press that was used to print his two-volume set, guess what it was used for? To print Bibles. The very printing press. Printed over nine or over one million copies of the Bible within nine years of his death. And went over 40 different countries. The very home of Voltaire was used as a storehouse for the Bibles. As they were printed, they would be stored in his house, and then they'd go to the rest of the world. Isn't that amazing? I love it. I mean, God has a sense of humor, I think. And he would take something that profane and then do something that wonderful. Now, God doesn't just have a sense of humor. He also gets things pretty strong with us as well. In Isaiah Chapter 5, we read these words, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What he's saying is, woe to those who say, this good is no longer good, it's bad, and this bad no longer is bad, it's good. 
and just flipping. And it's the same thing Paul says in Romans 1, where he says, it's not like they didn't have the truth. They just didn't want it. So at first they suppress it, and then they exchange it. Light for darkness, darkness for light. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, was saying these things. And then the next verse, he says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who measure themselves by themselves, who are wise by their own eyes. Their own insight. Nobody outside is now the standard of truth. There is no standard of right and wrong. Voltaire is his own standard. Isn't that amazing? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Then woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down into the flames so their roots will decay and their flowers will blow away like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel that's the why you see once you dismiss the word of God you dismiss truth right and wrong and then you just do your best without God but as long as we have God's word now we have something by which to measure life and we don't change the word of God to fit our lifestyle we change our lifestyle to fit the word of God because he is our creator created us in his image he knows what's going to make us happy he knows what's going to hurt us and like a good parent would do for his own child say hey don't do this it'll just get you in trouble do this and you will find fulfillment and that's what God the father is trying to do but people want to live their own lives in their own way and so they dismiss the word of God. I'll tell you the truth. Um, I, I told somebody this the other day. I have thoroughly enjoyed worshiping with you. I really have. For a number of different reasons, okay? But I told somebody the other day, I said, East Point, to me, is going to be more like heaven than Sunbury, which is where I ministered for 20 years. In Sunbury, it's mostly a white community, and so we had some Haitians and some other of race and nationality worship with us, but very much in the minority, and that was our community. But not so here. And I love it. Because this church reflects your community. And I don't care what the color is God gave you for the time that you're going to live here on this earth. I don't care. I don't care how smart you are or not. I don't care your skill set or not. But what I do care about is whether or not you can appreciate, respect, and try to live your life by the word of God. That's most important. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, thank you for the time together. I thank you for these who are here to worship, to give, but then also to receive from your word. And I pray that your word will lodge within our hearts so that when we leave here, we'll be stronger than when we came. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
For the last couple of weeks, and this will be the last of the three-week series, what we did was we took a look at the Word of God. Does it claim to be God's Word? And we found out that it does. What did Jesus think about that? He said, not a word will be broken. It is completely trustworthy. So Jesus' credibility is on the line. Because if the Word of God is now untrue or wrong in any points, then Jesus is wrong. And if Jesus is wrong, he cannot be our sacrifice. So his integrity is at stake as well. Last week, we took a look at how did God use mankind to write the word, and how does it compare and contrast with other religions? And so I think that was important. It's just one of a kind. One of a kind. The Koran, one man, 10 years in a cave, and he came out with the Koran. The Book of Mormon, one man, supposedly found some golden plates, translated them, came out with the Book of Mormon, but not the Bible. God uses 1,500 years, all kinds of people and occupations, and just the way it's put together is unlike any other book. Today, what we're going to be taking a look at is the evidence for our belief. And what that ends up being is history in the way of archaeology and prophecy. Now, a lot of times we think of prophecy as being in the future, but history reveals prophecy when it happened and did it actually take place. Okay, so that's a part of history, prophecy and archaeology. Now, seventh grade, uh, I, I don't like going back to seventh grade in my mind, but I will just for a moment, okay? Seventh grade was not easy for me, and one reason it was not easy is because of my history teacher. Some names just came to mind that I'm not going to say in public, okay? I did not like him. He did not like me. In fact, the only thing that he liked was um, girls with skirts on, okay? That was our history teacher. Couldn't stand him. Eighth grade, I'm thinking, okay, done with Ohio history. Well, it's American history now. Maybe I'll learn something there, and I'll really get to enjoy history. But guess who moved up from teaching seventh grade to eighth grade history? Yeah, same guy. Sugar Bear is what we called him. And I hated it again for an entire year. And the only class that I took in history was one required course in high school. That was it. Couldn't stand it. But when I got to college, I found professors that could make history come alive. And it became important to me and actually became one of my minors at that point. So history, I think, is, is very key in a couple of aspects. Number one, it answers critics and skeptics. Number two, it gives us evidence for the word of God. The Bible is not a science book, but it contains science. It's not a history book, but it contains history. It's something that you would expect from a God who is almighty. Two things that I want to share with you from history itself. One comes in the way of skeptics in the 1800s. They believed that the Bible was wrong because the Bible mentions the Hittites, who were a great and powerful nation, the Hittites. No one had ever unearthed anything that referred to the Hittites except for the Bible. It said that Abraham was a friend of the Hittites. It says later that when Israel became a nation that the Hittites sold them chariots and horses. And so there's this thing in the Bible, and skeptics are saying there was no such nation. You know what I just saw on PBS about six months ago? It, it, was, it was a special on the Hittite nation. 
They have unearthed and they have found in the dirt all kinds of, so much so that they put them on the same level as the Egyptian dynasty. They have now recognized how there are skeptics all the time. I don't care if it's Voltaire. I don't care if it's about the Hittites. But one of the greatest finds ever was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody done any reading on that? Any research at all? A few of you have. The Dead Sea Scrolls were, it was the greatest find. 1947, this is how it takes place. Little boy's out there, young lad, and he, he's got all these sheep. And so what does a shepherd do? Man, I don't know what a shepherd does. I'll tell you what, I've been to Israel a few times. You know what shepherds have today? They've got headphones on. I'm telling you, they do. They walk through and they've got, and they're doing their, not back in the days of 47. This shepherd's walking through and he's just throwing rocks. He's throwing rocks. Oh, there's a hole in the ground. I'll hit that hole in the ground. All of a sudden it goes in and it clink. Something's down there. So he goes over and he investigates and he goes, well, there's jars down there. There's some things down there. See, what people would do is that they would hide their valuable in a cave. And then they would block up that cave. And then they'd have an entrance to that and they'd block that up. You'd have to get through two or three different kind of roadblocks to be able to find the treasure that was in there. That's the way that they would hide things. Well, as God would have it, wind, whatever, time unearthed this finding in 1947. He goes back and he tells dad, hey, dad, and he comes, lowers him down into, actually, there were 11 caves here, the Qumran caves, okay? And they find things in all of these caves that were hidden. Unbelievable. Let's him down. And what does he do? He cuts off part of a manuscript and takes it to Jerusalem. And he says, hey, what do you guys think about this? They study it and they go, whoa, this predates Jesus. This is 2,000 years old. We will give you, and they gave him an exchange of money for it. What does he do? He goes back to the cave the next day and slices off another piece. Oh, yeah, he's going to make some money on this. So he goes back and he's going, let's sell this. How much will you give me for this? They finally figured out what he was doing. Don't do it, you know. They find over 40,000 manuscripts. It's an amazing discovery. Not just manuscripts, but coins that gave them the dates, pottery, all kinds of things in here. 40% of the manuscripts that they find are the Bible, the Old Testament. But there are other writings there as well by different uh, scholars of the day. Somebody asked me last week, have you ever heard of um, uh, the book of, uh, what was the guy's name, um, Enoch, from the Old Testament? He said, yeah, it's quoted by one of the authors in the Old Testament. They find the book of Enoch in this. So it's not just the scriptures, but the book of Enoch and some other things. Guess what? In all of the Old Testament, every one of the books has been hand-copied except for one book. Does anybody know what that was? One book in the Old Testament, not among them. It's the book of Esther. Because this community thought that it should not have been included in the Old Testament. Why? It's the only book in the Bible that does not have the word God in it. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, God's imprint is all over the place with Mordecai, with Esther, with the, the beauty pageant. That, how many of you have read the book of Esther? It's a cool story. It's really a great story, okay? But the word God is not in it. So that's the only book from the Old Testament not included. 19 copies of the book of Isaiah. We're going to get to why that's so important in a minute. But they find all of these things within, all right? You need to understand, 25,000 places that are mentioned in the Old Testament have been found by archaeology. It's real. Now, let me compare, contrast that with the Book of Mormon. Looks like a Bible, but it's not. Not created the same way at all. You know how many places, people, events have been found that are listed in the Book of Mormon, which is supposed to be a history of the North American continent? Zero. None. Now, contrast that with the Old Testament. Which one are you going to place your faith in? You see? God keeps giving us reasons to believe. And I believe the reason he does that is because things that I can check out do check out. And if they're real and they can be checked out, now things of my faith that I cannot check out, I can trust him for. Example, how do I know my sins are forgiven? Can't see it. I know it because the rest of the scriptures are true and can be verified. Therefore, the things I cannot see, I can believe as well because the evidence is there. Over and over again, archaeology lets us know that the Word of God is true. Even more importantly to me are the prophecies that are true. The prophecies range from the book of Genesis to Revelation. I mentioned the book of Isaiah was handwritten, hand-copied, 19 copies of. Why is that so important? Because the book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than all the other books in the Old Testament combined. The book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than all of them put together. And you find 19 copies and it's dated 200 years before Christ. You only know if it's a prophecy by knowing that it was written down ahead of time. You only know that it's God because he never misses and the prophecy is fulfilled. Isaiah is the one who says, his name shall be called Mighty God. Isaiah is the one who says, he shall be born of what? A virgin. And it's there 19 times. Isaiah goes on and on and on, describes the suffering servant for us, that by his stripes are we healed, and on and on. The scriptures that were found, the prophecies that are there, that will be born in Bethlehem, in the Psalms, that not a bone will be broken. They've looked upon him whom they have pierced, run through the heart with a spear. On and on and on. Over 300 prophecies just about Jesus himself. 
It's just, it's incredible that when we make this kind of a find and we realize that this wasn't just, I hope so, this was based on fact. And Jesus died for your sins and mine. How do I know that? Can't check that one out. Historical facts, archaeology, those kind of things point to the fact that he did. Now the why behind it is in the scriptures. That's the why. So we look at, at the prophecy and how things come to pass. There's one more prophecy to be fulfilled, right? Remember what that is? One more for sure. I mean, others think some things are going to happen in Israel. But this one I know, Jesus prophesied. He said, I'm going to come back. Now, how do we know that? Because the rest of the things we can check out, do check out. So I can trust the fact that he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back again and receive you to where I am. Where I am, there you may be also. I know in whom I believed. Paul was so convinced after he found out the facts. He was a Jewish man who would put to death and imprison Christians to begin with. And then he got the evidence, and then he had to recheck things for three years. He spent time in the Arabian desert and found out that what he had thought before didn't hold water. What was being taught among the Christians was true. And he then became a leader within the Christian churches. I, I just think we need to understand how important it is for us to have faith, but faith that's confident faith. Not just an I hope so faith. I took a class in grad school. It was called apologetics. It means a defense for the faith. One thing I remembered from that class, that when you spend a whole semester in a class and you can only remember one thing, I don't know. But here's the one thing that made a difference in my life. It was the definition that was given for faith. Faith is whole soul trust in God and his word based on the sufficiency of the evidence. Now, let's walk through that. It's a whole, it's a complete trust. It's a down deep inside kind of trust. Whole soul trust in what? God, but also his word, based on what? The evidence that it's sufficient. It's real. I can check it out. And so now I can place my life in the hands of God, who is the Almighty. And I can just trust him for all of that. So you're here to worship, and I hope to grow in your faith. And I hope we continue to grow until the day we die. I'm going to close with this. I asked you all for prayer, and many of you prayed for our family situation, our granddaughter and, and everything in it's still rough. It's not easy. But we know where she is, and she's safe. I had so many people pray for us. I got one email I want to share with you here in just a moment. But before I do, let me describe. When I graduated, there were six of us that have stayed in touch from high school. Isn't that cool? That was a long time ago. But we still stay in touch. Out of our group, now... I was the only one headed to Bible college, but this is what God did with our group of six guys. 
two other guys became preachers. One in Hannibal, Missouri, one where we grew up in Milford, Ohio, and then me. Another one became an elder at a church. Another one became a leader within his church. The sixth guy, the last guy, okay? Wayne is the one that has all the money. He, that's who he is. Had a business that him and his partner, they would own up to 20 companies around the world. China, New Zealand, America, Poland, just all over the world. Made all kinds of money at this. Well, I'd gotten to know him and his wife and sharing faith with them and that kind of thing. And it, it helped them in their faith. And he wrote me an email letting me know they were praying for. And along with that, he said this, Mike, you are the, you are the closest person to God that I know. And I thought, whoa. At first, honestly, at first it scared me. Because to be the one person who is closest to God that somebody else knows, wow. And I thought, well, you just don't know me well enough. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. Ask my kids. Ask people who know. I struggle with faith. You struggle. We all do in different ways, okay? So it was kind of a scary thing at first. And then after a bit, I thought, wow, what a compliment. That he knows that I have a close relationship with God, okay? Not just an occupation, but... And then the third thing came to mind. If I'm the closest person he knows to God, then there's a responsibility that I have to him. And I share that with you because I believe that everyone sitting in this room today, somebody who's watching you would probably say the same thing about you. You don't have to be real close to God. What I'm talking about is somebody that's not even as close as you are. You may just be on the journey. You may be into the journey a long time. But there's always somebody that's back here that's watching, that's looking. And somebody looks at you and goes, that's the person I know that's closest to God. What a responsibility we have as a church. To be godly, to have a strong faith, not just an I hope so faith, and to be able to help bring others to Christ. He's the one who saves, not a preacher, not a church. Isn't that right? That's right. Would you bow with me and we're going to close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you have brought us here today. I thank you that we have in the past, uh, history and, and different evidences, because that's what I needed at different times. I, I needed something to just strengthen my faith. And then I can trust you for things I cannot see. Father, thank you for these who are here. I pray that out of everything else, you would help us to understand that we need to continue to grow. We can't stop. And that a year from now we'll be stronger and five years from now we'll see a difference. And we just keep getting closer in our understanding, in our lifestyle. Doesn't match the world, but what we want to match is you. So, Father, confirm our faith. Continue to provide strength for our faith so that those who are watching us 
might come to know the Christ as well. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.